Well, if you will, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look specifically at verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10, and I'm going to call this the warning to flee. Now, if you would, go ahead and keep your hand here at uh, these passages. We are going to look at uh, verses 7 through 10. Uh, and what we have here is an interaction between John the... I'm going to call him John the Immerser. Many call him John the Baptist, but that word baptizo means to immerse. Uh, and he was going around and telling people about the kingdom, and he was immersing. And so uh, we see an interaction here with John the Immerser, and specifically in this interaction that he's going to have with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he is going to warn them to flee. Now again, as we look at this, we're going to look specifically at why he's telling the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees and those in the crowd that they need to flee. But as we do this, we're also going to make some practical application. So if you will, go ahead, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Let's start in verse 7. Here we find uh, again with John the Immerser. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth, forth, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now we start off here with what many would consider to be very controversial type of preaching or addressing the crowd here. Uh, John the Immerser is being very direct to his audience. And I think what we would find is, is, and we will notice as we begin to look here at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that what he is saying strictly applies to them. He's not, uh, he's not being aggressive in any way, uh, but he is being, being very uh, powerful and, and poignant in his, in his words. Now, we have the mentioning here of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at this time, there were really three different groups. You had the Pharisees, number one, uh, you had the Sadducees, number two, and you had the Essenes. Now, if you're watching this and you don't know much about them, let me give you just a little bit of information about them. Uh, the Pharisees were a very prominent group at this time, really began about 100 uh, BC, or sorry, uh, BC, yeah, to about AD 70. Uh, and that AD 70 is the time at which the temple would have been destroyed there with the destruction of Jerusalem. And this was a sect that took uh, great pride in their um, understanding of the Scriptures, their correctly uh, interpretation or exegeting the, scripture, the Scriptures. Uh, they took great pride in uh, making sure that they remained pure, talking about um, their adherence to observance of the Sabbath, all of their different uh, things such as prayer, such as tithing, and so they placed a lot of prominence on this. Now, the problem with the Pharisees was that they oftentimes would go beyond God's Word, and they would actually begin to make their own laws in addition to those. And so this group, again, was very, uh, it was, it was very important to them to maintain uh, a correct understanding and application of the Scripture, but oftentimes this then veered off into creating their own rules. Now, the second group was the Sadducees, they're a very interesting group also. Uh, normally, this group was made up of those who were made up of uh, noble uh, backgrounds. 
usually it was amongst those prominently who had wealth. Uh, and so they really, they really derived all of their power from their source of standing within um, and their influence within their, the Jews there in that area. Uh, now, they were a little bit different than the Pharisees. They, uh, they didn't live according to uh, the same guidelines as the Pharisees. We know that many would call these to really be, the, I guess, the liberals of the day in a sense. Uh, the Pharisees focused on their teachings and their understanding and correct application, yet when you begin to look at the Sadducees, uh, they denied outright the resurrection. Uh, they didn't place near as much emphasis on correct application. They were a number of times you could go back, specifically regarding things like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You could see that they held anti-scriptural views. Uh, and so they were really worried about the here and the now. They were worried about, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they were worried about you know, basically making the most of this life uh, because there wasn't going to be any blessings in the next. Now, we did have a third group I mentioned. That was the Essenes. The Essenes were very similar to the Pharisees. They, had, they tried to have correct uh, understanding of the Scriptures. They tried to have correct application of the Scriptures. But like the Sadducees, they also did not believe uh, in the resurrection. And they were a little bit different in that they quite often would isolate themselves. Uh, you've probably heard of the Essenes when you go back and you look at, uh, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here in this account, though, we only have the Pharisees and we have the Sadducees. Uh, and as we begin to look at them, I think you're going to notice right off the bat that these guys are not a whole lot different than the majority of people that we would deal with today. The Pharisees were full of deceit. They were completely hypocritical uh, in their actions. And then as we look at the Sadducees again, they were focused on the here and now, much like people today. Uh, and they were scripturally wrong about a number of things. And so again, we find that both of these groups have a lot of characteristics that we find familiar today. I'm going to go on over to Matthew 12, uh, verses 34. Matthew 12, verse 34. Notice what Jesus says. He says, O generation of vipers. Now again, that's exactly what we find John the Immerser saying. He says, How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You may be saying, well, what exactly is Jesus trying to get across here? Clearly what Jesus is trying to say to them is, is you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You say one thing, but you're doing something completely different. Now, that's a little unusual in the fact that for the most part, specifically with the Pharisees, they were looking for a Messiah to come. It seems completely unusual that people who were waiting for a Messiah and yet were living just as Jesus calls them out, being hypocrites. Now you may say, Jesus used some very powerful words there, and rightly so. And many would look at John the Immerser's words and they would be asking themselves, why is it that John the Immerser feels the need to use such powerful and descriptive words as he addresses those in the audience? As many of you know today, we seem to be a culture of where everybody wants loving words and, and everybody's offended if you tell them that they're doing something wrong or if you disagree with them. John the Immerser didn't worry about any of that. John the Immerser knew that the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, they were hypocrites uh, and or they were just worried about the things in this world. They weren't truly worried about pleasing God. And so he starts off with a pretty basic message here. He tells them they need to flee the wrath to come. And guys, that's not any different than what we find with men today. I'm going to go on over to Matthew 3, 
Verse 7, again, this is where he is telling them that they need to flee this wrath. John the Immerser, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Basically, he's, he's, he's trying to find out from them, who's told you, you know, to come up and flee from this wrath? Who's told you that, that I'm preaching here about the kingdom? It's interesting that as you begin to look at this group, they may not have even realized that, that there was a wrath to come, or, like the Sadducees, they didn't believe in it. Part of what we find out real quick here is, and John the Immerser starts off with this, about asking them, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We learn that the wrath of God is real. Now, a lot of people, I, I believe, uh, they don't really like to think of that. Now, Jesus confirms to us that it's real. Matthew 23, 33, he says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? So Jesus starts off by confirming hell and the judgment. And certainly today, many do not believe that. Groups who are atheistic, groups who are humanistic. You'd even have some who would claim to be Christians and believe in hell and damnation and the judgment. And yet you look at the way that they live their life and you say, certainly there's no way you believe in the wrath of God. Because if you did believe in the wrath of God and the judgment to come, there's no way you could be living like this. That's exactly what John the Immerser is saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm going to go on over to Romans chapter uh, 2. Romans chapter 2. I'm going to start here in verse 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man... Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Let me say real quick, that's just completely hypocritical, right? That's what he's pointing out. He goes on. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. His point was they deserve judgment. Sorry again, here we're in Romans chapter 2 starting in verse 1. He says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So they deserve this judgment. Verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, we know for a fact that there's going to be a judgment. Many people, I, I think, do not realize that the judgment or this wrath is not going to be based on their standard of morality, at least not from the way that they live. It's going to be based on God's standard of morality. And yet, you have people today living in sinful lifestyles, and so I'm not accused of picking on any, I'll just begin to mention some. You have people living in homosexual lifestyles, clearly condemned by the Scriptures. You have people uh, promoting things such as abortion, clearly sinful. You have people who are committing fornication or uh, intimate acts outside of marriage. They're not married. And you have people committing adultery. They are married, but they're committing acts with people to whom they're not married. And we could go on and on and on. And many do those things, and they think that they're not going to face wrath or judgment from it, right? They, they're using their own standard of morality. There is going to be wrath and judgment, and it will be based on God's standard. Not only that, as we begin to consider this wrath, and it's interesting, I was watching a, a show the other night, 
and the gentleman had a dream that he had, he had gone to hell. And, and then another guy came back and said, well, you know, where you were at was bad, but uh, I don't even think you were really in hell. I think you were in purgatory. Uh, and the guys, that's a made-up Catholic doctrine. But he said, at the most, you're going to be there, you know, for a few thousand years. And guys, once you're dead, a few thousand years passes like a few days, and that's not going to be a big deal. What we find here is, is that at the judgment, and there's not going to be any purgatory, there's going to be severe wrath for all of those who have not met the standard of God. And Jesus makes it pretty clear to us that this is extremely horrible. Going over to Mark 9, 43-48, Mark 9, 43-48, I've heard people say things like, you know, uh, where we're at right now, this is, this is just us living out our punishment here on earth. This is really hell on earth. Guys, you can think about hell, and you can try to think of the worst thing that you can, but there is no way you can really even understand or describe how severe the wrath of God is going to be on those who simply did not adhere to His standard. Listen to how Jesus describes it in Mark 9, 43-48. And because He wants us to get the point, He continues to emphasize this. He says, And if thy hand offend thee, this is John 9, starting in verse 43, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. He's saying this is everlasting torment, guys. Verse 45. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Again, it is everlasting torment. He goes on, verse 47, And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Again, everlasting torment. Now, for the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, this probably isn't going to scare them a whole lot. For the Pharisees who do believe in the resurrection, this type of language gives them the understanding that hell and the afterlife for those who have been unfaithful, it's going to be miserable. It's going to be a horrible experience. Now, you'd think for many that this would lead us to motivation uh, for being faithful or being obedient to the will of God. Either, either I need to obey the gospel and be faithful, or if I've already obeyed the gospel, I need to continue to be faithful. Go on over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's notice what Paul says here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me say this. That's everybody. Whether you claim to be a Christian, whether you claim to be a Muslim, whether you claim to be an atheist, whether you're agnostic, I don't care what you claim to be, everybody is going to stand at the judgment seat, before the judgment seat of Christ. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Let me pause again. This is not good or bad based on your sense of morality. This is good or bad based on the will of God. This is talking about being in alignment with or not in alignment with our holy inspired scriptures given to us by revelation. Notice verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. 
He says, knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing exactly how bad this wrath is going to be, we're persuading people. That's part of the reason John the Immerser is using the type of language that he's using. He's trying to persuade them. Guys, there used to be people that taught hellfire and damnation sermons, and you don't hardly hear them anymore. In our environment, many people are turned off by that. They don't want to hear things that appear to be negative, even though it is trying to persuade them to be faithful and to obey the gospel. People have seemed to gotten away from that lately. And yet, that's the type of language that oftentimes we find being used, not only by Jesus, but also here by John the Immerser. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were there in the audience, who were listening to John the Immerser talk, they needed to get rid of all these false securities that they had, they had really relied on. Now, go over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, and notice what he says here. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. What's he trying to get us to understand here? He's trying to get us to understand that these Jews were putting their trust in the wrong things. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, again, they didn't believe the same things. But both groups were putting their trust in the wrong things. He starts off really talking about the Pharisees. These guys were relying on their, on their heritage or on their ancestors, right? He says, don't go back and say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham to our father. Guys, they had a false sense of security. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who based their, their beliefs on what their, what their family members believed or what their family members did, but that's really kind of what we've got going on here. Now, what exactly was it that they were missing? Because they're walking around telling people, we're the children of Abraham. Well, later we find out from Paul in Galatians 3.29, he says, And if ye be Christ's, to be Christ's is to be a Christian. To be Christ's is to be a member of Christ's church, the church of Christ. To be Christ's means that you're in alignment 100% with the Scriptures, right? You're a Christian, not a Baptist, not a Methodist, not a Pentecostal. You're just a Christian. You're Christ's. He says, Then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, it's interesting that as I look at these, these Pharisees and, and even the Sadducees who would have gone back and they're placing their, they're placing their faith in, in the fact that they're Abraham's children, right? They think that's enough for them to uh, either be considered righteous or to get to heaven. It seemed very similar to my upbringing as a Catholic. You know, I was told as long as you're Catholic, you're going to go to heaven. It didn't even really matter what you do or what you believe, but if you're Catholic, you're going to go to heaven. You're right? I could walk around saying, I'm a Catholic. Right? Similar to them saying, well, we're, we're the children of Abraham. But you've got other groups that said that too. It's not just the Catholics. who People like to pick on the Catholics. You've got people who say, well, I'm, I'm Baptist, so I'm, I'm going to heaven. And I'm sure you've got that in the Pentecostals and the Methodists and all the other groups. And guys, you know what's even worse? You even have that within the churches of Christ. You've got people saying, I'm, I'm Church of Christ. I'm a Church of Christer. I'm going to heaven. They place that on the fact that they maybe were raised up in a group or uh, raised up by a family that was members of the churches of Christ. Maybe they've even uh, were raised up in a denominational group and they became Christians and later they decided to just pay, place their confidence in the fact that they're attending the right church. Guys, you could attend the right church uh, and not be faithful. 
Well, many of these Pharisees and the Sadducees, it wasn't just relying on their lineage or their heritage. They had other problems. You have them even relying on the fact that maybe they had wealth or that they had been physically blessed, talking about being rich. I want you to notice what Jesus teaches in Matthew 19, verses 23 through 25. And it's interesting as we read this, even His disciples are shocked at what it is that Jesus teaches. Matthew 19, starting in verse 23, Then said Jesus unto His disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when His disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? I find it very interesting that the disciples were so shocked by that. And yet, as I look around at our society today, it seems the majority of people are focused on wealth. I mean, even the majority of religious groups that you watch online or even that you might attend, seems like all they're focused on is, is wealth. Well, they had that problem too. And it wasn't just the Jews. It wasn't just the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's not just people of the world today. I mean, we even have that problem with Christians. Notice what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. They didn't just have problems with placing their, their faith or their trust in lineage. They didn't have just problems with trusting in their wealth. They had some problems uh, dealing with what I'm going to just call either traditional religion or the, uh, and we'll get down into it a little bit more, traditions of men. And we're going to go, to, uh, go over to Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 3. And we have a very interesting interaction here with Jesus and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he, being Jesus, he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? That's a pretty good question that Jesus just asked them. They start off by asking him, Why aren't you following our traditions? You know, why didn't you wash your hands before you, before you ate your bread, right? They had this idea that made it, it, it makes you unclean. But Jesus turns it back around and He says, Why is it you violate the commands of God because of your traditions? Remember, I mentioned earlier the Pharisees uh, quite oftentimes were very uh, poignant on trying to be correct and doing many of the right things, and yet they took it beyond that. They come up with their own way of doing things. We have that going on. Uh, we could look at a number of religious groups. Again, uh, since I grew up Catholic, let's pick on them for a little bit. Uh, for most people who aren't familiar with Catholics, uh, they have worship on Saturday night. They also have worship on Sunday. That's been going on for a long time, even though we know that worship is only on the first day of the week, Sunday, Acts 20, verse 7. But guys, that's one of the traditions that you find within the Catholic Church. The community church by my house, they're doing, they're doing Monday night. I forget what they call it. Monday night madness or something like that. Guys, you don't find anything in the Bible about worshiping and having worship on Monday night. That's a tradition they have there at that community church, right? We could look at, uh, for example, church hierarchy, right? The tradition of the Catholic church, they've got archbishops, they've got the pope. 
They got their priests. That's nothing like the elders and deacons you find in the, described in the Scriptures. If you go over to uh, Philippians 1.1. And we can look at a, a number of other things where people have taken traditions that were handed down and maybe have even changed over time and they build upon those traditions and they actually take that and equate it to being righteous or not righteous, even when it has nothing to do with our Scriptures. And guys, don't pretend for a second that that doesn't even happen within the churches of Christ. It does. We have the same problems. How about human creeds? I'm going to go over to Matthew 15, 9, just a little bit further down from where you're at right now. Matthew 15, 9. Jesus says, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Commandments of men. We see this going on in denominational religious groups today. We could mention a few of them, things like Calvinism, even named after Calvin, things like um, pre, uh, premillennialism. Uh, we, could, we could list a bunch of those. And you're going to find those men's teachings, the doctrines of men, in every one of the denominational groups. That's why we have denominational groups. You had the church. The church went apostate into what we find the Catholic Church. Then you had the Protestant movement who rebelled against the Catholic Church, and they broke into groups based on men's teachings. That's what a denomination is. Like, like a dollar is a denomination of, of a 20, right? Or a quarter is a denomination of, of a dollar bill. That's what denomination is. It's a smaller part of the whole, right? They had doctrines of men's, but you have the same thing with community churches. Now, they may not call it doctrines. They might call it something like this. Well, we major on the majors and we minor on the minors. That's, that's their doctrine that they teach. You could look at stuff even within the churches of Christ. You've got the 80, 70 heretics teaching Jesus came back in the form of the Roman government uh, in 70 AD. You've got members within the churches of Christ who believe and are teaching uh, Holy Spirit indwelling. You've got members of the churches of Christ teaching Holy Spirit baptism, of course, they have to call it non-miraculous because they know that they can't stand on that teaching any, anyway. But the point is simply this. Not only did the Sadducees and the Pharisees place their trust in the wrong things, it's still happening today. It's happening amongst those who are not Christians, and it's happening with those who are Christians. Let me spend just a few minutes talking about <clears throat> what they needed to be doing as opposed to what he's calling them out on. They needed to be bearing good fruit. Go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. We'll look at this all together, even though we've looked at some of it, but we need to read it as a whole. Matthew 3, starting in verse 8. Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees, Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. John the Immerser makes it pretty clear here that every single person needs to repent of the sins they've committed. That's part of what happens when one obeys the gospel. But that also takes place after one has obeyed the gospel and sins or transgresses the standard that we have in our inspired scriptures. Right? Now, this idea of repentance is probably a mindset that may have, even for many of the Jews, come across as unusual. Remember earlier, they were saying, we're the children of Abraham. They may not have even came to the conclusion that they weren't righteous or that they needed to repent. Again, they were relying on their heritage or their lineage. Now, Paul had proved that being of Abraham meant that we need to live obediently so that we could attain the promises of God. 
I'm going to go over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 8 through 13, and he's really going to address both Jew and Gentile as he gets us to understand this. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. You might be wondering, well, who exactly is that? Verse 9, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or the Jew, or upon the uncircumcision also, the Gentile. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? It's a good question. When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, he's not, he is not talking about faith only. Many love to go there. Uh, but his point was simply this. Just being a Jew is not the prerequisite uh, for eternal salvation. As a matter of fact, as we continue to look here, the prerequisite for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life was fruits worthy of repentance. And we can look at a number of examples of fruits worthy of repentance. That would include things like godly sorrow over one's sin. And you could go over and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and following. You could look at the fact that we need to be obedient, John 3.36, or even Luke 6.46. Why call you me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Guys, the Jews, they had all kinds of traditions and works. And here's the thing, they were dead. Guys, we have people today who are religious but are dead. Notice what Jesus teaches over in Matthew 23.27. Matthew 23.27. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchers. We're talking about the graves there in the graveyard, right? We always drive by the graveyard and the stones, they look so white and clean. He says, Ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness, right? You drive by the cemetery and you see the white stones, and man, it's beautiful, especially when the grass is mowed. But have you ever stopped to think that there's a bunch of dead bones underneath that? And that's what he's saying here when he talks to the Pharisees. They made themselves look so, so perfect and upright, right? They're spiritual. And he says, you look beautiful on the outside appearance, but inside you're just full of a bunch of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Guys, that was, that was the Pharisees. They relied on traditions. They relied on giving the outward appearance of religion, but inside they were dead. They were just full of filth and uncleanness. And guys, it wasn't just the Pharisees, and it wasn't just the Sadducees. We find the same thing even within the church. Listen to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, as we look here at the congregation in Sardis. Jesus <coughs> here... And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works. Let me pause for a minute. I told you there's all kinds of religious groups out there doing works. 
Is that enough? He goes on, that thou has a name, that thou livest and art dead. Guys, the community church by my house, they're constantly giving out food. But I know what they teach. Spiritually, they're dead. You've got many people who are spiritual today, and like the Jews, they're dead, oftentimes because they neglect obedience. Now I'm going to go over to uh, Acts chapter 24. We're going to look at the account here with Paul and Felix. It's an interesting account, Acts 24. I'm going to read verse starting there in verse 25, actually. And in this account with Felix, what you have is someone who is at least interested in spiritual stuff enough to listen to Paul. Acts 24:25. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, this is after Felix has been told, it says, Felix trembled, and he answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He must have been somewhat interested in spiritual things, but not enough to be obedient. And we find that not only with the Pharisees in many accounts here, and the Sadducees, but also with Christians. And so we have this warning. I'm going to go over to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. We have a warning here. Therefore we, talking about Christians, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. I want you to remember him focusing on, the, on that word there, heard. Lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? Now again, we have the word heard there. Why is that so important? Well, we know faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. But guys, we can't just be hearers of the word. We have to be doers of the Word. James 1, verse 25. Let me give you just an example of that. Hebrews 10, 25. We're going to talk about people who are hearers of the Word and not doers. Hebrews 10, 25 is talking about the assembling of the congregation. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Let me say, there were people in the first century who, who were forsaking the assembling he says, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I don't need to go back and really spend much time on this because we've already addressed it. Acts 20, verse 7, we know that the Christians were gathering on the first day of the week. And he says, you ought not to be forsaking the assembling, right? Well, if I'm sick and I can't get there, uh, I'm not forsaking because the gathering is still going on, but I, I'm sick, I, I can't go. Or if I physically can't get there, if I'm trying to drive to the building and my car breaks down and I can't get there, I'm not forsaking. However, the rest of the congregation is meeting, and there is at no time anywhere where a congregation should not be able to gather together somewhere. I don't mean here in the building. A congregation should be able to gather somewhere. And the majority of that congregation would be there. If we had a congregation of 40 and 8 people were sick, then the other two, 32 are still going to gather together. And those 8 don't show up. If one's out of town, uh, he might have to worship with a different body that's gathering on that first day. And the ones who were sick wouldn't come. But the rest of the congregation gathers together. And we do it every Lord's Day, just as we've been commanded and just as we have examples. But yet we all know people, and we might be even guilty ourselves, where... 
we wake up and decide, you know what, I'm not going to gather today. And I'm going to forsake the assembly. Guys, I'm going back to the fact that there are people who are spiritual, some even claiming to be religious or whatever they may call themselves, and yet they're not being obedient. And it's not just the forsaking of the assembling. There's uh, many commands that they might be uh, neglecting. That's just one of them that we, we bring up this, this uh, evening. Many people today, both Christians and non-Christians, are just like the Jews here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they simply oppose truth. Now I'm going to go on over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. And it's interesting, when people are rejecting the truth, they're actually opposing themselves. Paul tells Timothy, "...and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth." and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. He talks about those that oppose themselves, and then he says, if God peradventure, he's going to give them repentance to acknowledging of the truth. A lot of people won't acknowledge the truth. Uh, they can see it plain as day right in front of them, just like many people today who will read the many verses that talk about baptism being immersed in water even seeing that it is the culminating act in every conversion account found in our New Testament scriptures, they'll read it, they'll see it, they understand it, and will say, I don't need to be baptized to be saved. Those are people who oppose truth, just like many of the Jews who fell into the same category. You've got people who are out promoting lawlessness. Now, again, this would, this would uh, meet members who are members of the church and those who are not members of the church. I'm going to start off by simply giving you an example of members of the church who did this. I used this verse the other day, uh, but in 3 John 9, it says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. And it goes on and says, and he won't let us, he won't let other people receive them, right? He's promoting lawlessness. That's just one example in the church. We could go over to the book of 1 Corinthians and look at a number of examples of lawlessness being promoted within the church. But it's not just the church. Certainly we have it happening by those who are out in the world. People who, I mean, right now during this coronavirus, they got churches for the most part shut down, and yet the abortion clinics are still open. Guys, there are people out there who will promote lawlessness and sin and even try to make you think that it's okay. You've got people today who are not only promoting lawlessness or sin, but they're involved in immorality. Again, this is certainly happening out in the world, but let's not pretend it's not happening within the church. It is. I'm going to go over to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. This is probably a passage the majority of you, if you're watching this and you're a Christian, you're familiar with this. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. He says, you know, you guys over there in Corinth, it's, it's being told to us that, that there is sin among you. You guys are involved in fornication, and what you're doing is so bad, we don't even find the Gentiles involved in this type of sin. Guys, it really ought not to surprise us when we find that there are Christians involved in sin that is just as heinous if not worse, than what we find taking place out in the world around us. And again, oftentimes, the people that are involved in that, 
They call themselves Christians. They have the good outward appearance, just like the Pharisees, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Now, I could walk around telling people I'm a Christian all day long, but if I act like that, my actions prove that I'm not a faithful Christian. And so Paul gives a warning over in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to look at verses 19 through 21. Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. That word such like means there's a whole lot more. He could have made this list probably a, a book and a half long, right? Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You have people out in the world who are doing these things. Guess what? They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You've got members within the churches of Christ doing these types of things. And they think they're going to go to heaven. I'd encourage you again, go back and look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, also verses 21 and 22. There are a lot of people going around saying, but didn't we do all these great things in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. They're going to be members even within our own pews who are going to be surprised at the judgment. And I want you to ask yourself this as I start to wind this down. I mean, do you think for a second that you can be partially pure and partially impure and be pleasing to God? Well, James makes it clear that the answer is no, as he's addressing the dangers of the tongue. I'm going to go over to James chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. James chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. He says, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Let me pause. The answer is no. No. Well, we had a well on the farm. I didn't get two types of water out of that well. I got the same kind. You don't mix two types of water in a well. He goes on, verse 12. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either vine, figs? The answer is no. No, that doesn't happen. He goes on. So, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh? He's saying that doesn't happen, right? And if you think for a second that you can be both pure and impure and be pleasing to God, you're mistaken. And John the Immerser is pointing this out also to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I want you to notice, I'm going to go down to Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 10. This is our last verse we're going to look at this evening. <clears throat> John the Immerser says, And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. You know, the genealogy of the tree doesn't matter a whole lot. We already looked at that in the book of Romans with Paul talking about the circum and the uncircumcision. But what we do understand is, is if it's not going to produce good fruit, then the tree is worthless and it's going to be cut out of the, the orchard and it's going to be removed. Here's his point. The individual who's not going to repent through godly sorrow over the sins is just like an unfruitful and a worthless tree in the middle of an orchard. It's going to be cut down and it's going to be thrown into the fire. And that's exactly why there's a warning to flee. And that's exactly why John the Immerser uses the powerful language that he does in addressing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because they needed to understand that. 
Now, as I draw this to a close, I have no idea who is watching this online. It is my desire that every single person would be a Christian, and not just a Christian, that you would be a faithful Christian. It is not a complicated process, but I will tell you this, it is not what is prominently taught by religious groups. Most religious groups simply teach you need to ask Jesus into your heart. We don't find that anywhere in our inspired scriptures. But what we do find is, is that in every conversion account, the Word of God was being preached. I already mentioned Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Actually, the word there is Christ. People needed to hear about Jesus Christ. They needed to know about the kingdom that was coming. They needed to understand that the kingdom was the church, and they certainly needed to know that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And if they're not going to believe that, they're going to die in their sins, John 8, 24. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, But without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You need to hear the Word of God, understand about the kingdom, which is the church, understand Jesus was the Messiah, and you need to believe that. And you need to repent of your sins. Again, John the Immerser was constantly teaching about repentance and the kingdom. Jesus was teaching about repentance in the kingdom. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The consequence is death, Romans 6.23. And therefore, you need to repent of your sins. Luke 13.3 and 5, Nay, I tell you, except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And Paul taught the exact same thing on Mars Hill to those Gentiles. Everybody needs to repent, and you need to confess the name of Christ. Romans 10.10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's exactly what we find with the Ethiopian eunuch there in Acts chapter 8. And then finally, you need to be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. Mark 16, 15, and 16. Jesus makes it very clear, you need to be immersed in water. He commands it. Peter says the same thing in Acts 2, verse 38. We find over in... Uh, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, that's how one gets into Christ. Romans 6, 3 and 4, we learn it is a burial in the water. And then when you come up, you are a new creation, and the Lord adds you to the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Now, I know I just went through a lot of verses by memory, but guys, that's all you need to do, and it's not that complicated. If you've never heard that, uh, any one of the men here would be willing to sit and study with you. You can contact us. We would even provide stuff via email. Uh, we would help you find a church if you're not local in your local area that's faithful. But guys, we want everyone to be a Christian. And if you're already a Christian, we want you to remain faithful. That means if you've fallen short of the standard of God, you need to repent of that and turn, turn back again and be faithful. But as I begin to draw this to a close, I would urge you, Go back and think about what it is that's required so that you can flee this wrath to come.